Last week, the world watched in horror as thousands of Trump supporters stormed the nation's capital in hopes of preventing the Congress of validating President-elect Joe Biden's uh, official announcement. Now, I have to be a little careful with my choice of words because I know that not all Republicans are Trump supporters. And I also know that all, not all Trump supporters uh, are for insurrection and rioting um, or whatever that was last week. Uh, most Republicans that I know condemned last week's riots and many Trump supporters don't agree with what happened. And they are just as appalled as uh, most of us are. Now, if you're anything like me, you are probably um, outraged, disgusted, and disappointed at what we witnessed last week. Um, and those images that we just looked at are just a snapshot of what uh, ensued. But there were um, two things in particular that I saw during the media coverage of this that um, really caught my attention. First, um, I noticed that there were some Asian people in the crowd, which was very, very disappointing. Now, the main rhetoric that we had uh, up until now was that like the main supporters of uh, Trump were these like white conservative evangelicals, right, who were um, kind of um, pressing this cause and pushing this cause forward for Trump, right? But when I saw some Asian people there and I even saw a Korean flag there, I was like, Oh my God, what are you doing? Don't they know that they're not supposed to be there? And like, as I was watching some of the news footage, um, the videos, I, I saw one, a couple people that looked like my family relatives. And I was no, it can't be my family relatives. Like no one lives in DC, but um, yeah. And I even saw like a Korean flag that was like waving. And I was like, what are they doing? They're, they're like totally making us look bad. And so, um, you know, we can't say it's just like white people who are the problem, right? Like there might have been some like um, black and brown people there too, but the ones that I noticed were Asians. And so uh, <laughs> I was extremely disappointed and um, sad about that. But the other thing that I noticed uh, while watching this news coverage of the riots um, last week was that I saw some people holding crosses and Christian flags during these riots while they were um, storming the nation's capital. And sadly, that wasn't surprising, you know, because I knew that a lot of conservative right wing, uh, I hate to say this, but Christians were the ones who were supporting Trump. And there are images of like people like praying at the steps of the nation's capital and um you know there were like people wearing like christian shirts like who are like running into the house of congress and stealing things and oh god it was like so disgusting and if you call yourself a christian like i do you might have seen some of those even and and i know that not everyone there were christian right i know that not everyone who stormed the capital were christian but a lot of them were right and if you call yourself a Christian and you saw what ensued last week, um, you might have felt embarrassed. Like I totally felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed 
to call myself a Christian uh, when I saw that happening. And I know in my heart that they don't represent my Jesus. I know what they're doing. God is looking down and is condemning them and like uh, is rebuking their actions. But there still is a part of me that like believes or thinks that some of these people might be genuine Christians, right? And, uh, you know, who am I to judge their faith, okay? They're, they're definitely wrong, right, in, in doing what they did at D.C. last week. And um, it's appalling. It's disgusting. But can I go so far to say that all these people who say they're Christian are not genuine Christians? I can't say that. I mean, I'm sure some of them are faking it, right? So I was thinking about this, and I was really wrestling with this, right, as probably some of you were. How could Christians participate in these riots? How could, if they call themselves Christians, if they call themselves follower of Jesus Christ, how could they participate in these riots and this insurrection in D.C. last week? I really had to wrestle with it. And if I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, all right, let's say I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and let's say that they truly are believers, right? They truly are Christian. The only solution or the only answer that I could come up with for this difficult question, like how could Christians participate in this insurrection last week, right? It is because their faith has not matured, evolved, or grown beyond spiritual infancy. Ultimately, that has to be the reason. It is because their faith has not matured or grown beyond spiritual infancy. Their faith has been largely one-dimensional, immature, and uh, triumphalistic, all right? And that word is probably a terrible word because it sounds so close to the word Trump, right? But America has been pushing this triumphalistic and celebratory theology, not just for the past four years since Trump was president, it's for the past several decades, okay? It's this attitude in America that always wants to win. Um, Actually, let me take that back. It's this attitude in America that always needs to win. And this is not uniquely a Christian theme, okay? This is just a Western mentality, all right? Just yesterday, okay, let me just give you one example, one small example. Just yesterday, I was browsing through Instagram stories, right, like I do sometimes. Um, Probably waste too much time doing that kind of crap. And um, this yoga instructor that I follow, um, she was talking about these past 10 months and how it's been so hard for her and how, um, uh, you know, it was really hard for this (laughs) yoga instructor. Okay, Uh, okay, I'm I'm, I'm sidetracking, I'm I'm belittling this. But she was talking about how it's been so hard for her and when these bad things are happening, she uh, chose to be a victim, right? And now she is like giving this like talk and she is saying, now when bad things happen to me, I have to ask myself, do I want to be a victim or a victor, right? And I will always choose to be a victor and I am not going to lose. And she was giving this whole rhetoric right on her instagram stories right and as i was listening to this i I was thinking like this kind of sounds like a feel-good consumeristic christian sermon and it's so you know and it's not just a christian thing i think it's more of an american thing 
because Christians in other countries don't think this way, okay? Um, uh, and, and I wonder, like, uh, why do Americans always think in such binary terms, okay? And when I'm asking this question, I'm also doing some self-reflection because I, I still am caught in this uh, narrow-minded mentality. We think in such binary terms, don't we? You're either a victim or a victor. You're either bitter or you're better. You're either a sinner or a saint. And it's this dichotomization of Christian faith and this American perspective, this American worldview that has led us down some incredibly destructive behaviors. And that mentality, that perspective, that worldview was on the spotlight for the entire world to witness in Washington, D.C. last week. In his uh, most recent book, uh, Prophetic Lament, Old Testament professor Dr. Soon Chong Ra criticized the American church as largely having this theology of triumphalism and celebration. But when that is the vast majority of a person's faith, it becomes not only unhealthy for the individual's spirituality, it becomes destructive to the community that he or she resides. He said this, Christian communities arising from celebration do not want their lives changed because their lives are in a good place. Think about that, okay? Christian communities arising from celebration do not want their lives changed because their lives are in a good place. Ultimately, you know, we hear these things like people hate change or people resist change. That's not true, okay? That's not true at all. People of privilege resist change. But people living in poverty, they want nothing but change. People living uh, in marginalized situations, they want change to happen, okay? They're hungry for change. They're desperate for change. But those of us who are living in privilege, okay, I'm talking to myself here, okay, I am very privileged, all right? It's difficult for us to change because usually that means some sort of loss or sacrifice, right? We don't want to give up our lifestyle. We don't want to give up our status quo. We don't want to pay more taxes, right? Uh, uh, we want to benefit from our comfortable homes, our living expenses. We want to buy what we want to buy. Uh, and we want to live where we want to live and we want to do what we want to do. And, and so people of privilege resist change. But it's really people who are living in poverty, who are marginalized, who are outcasts, who are oppressed, who are on the, um, who are the outliers of society. They want nothing but change. And this is what I brought up um, to you all in my email a few days ago, my weekly church email, is that uh, people tend to only want comfortable, consumeristic Christianity. Then uh, they throw a fit when they are required to make changes or sacrifices. You might be on one part of the spectrum where these past 10 months you have become incredibly cynical apathetic or even angry over the course of the last uh, year or so and it's easy to fall into that trap of cynicism 
when it seems like the world is spinning out of your control. Or maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum where your job security isn't threatened and your home life has not changed all that much. And so you've become indifferent and maybe even sheltered from the world that's falling apart outside your doors. If this is the case, okay, in either extreme is not healthy to our spirituality, right? And we have to be mindful of this. And this really brings us to this topic of growth today, right? Um, if we don't recognize reality for what it is, if we don't face reality for what it is, then we kind of live in this bubble, we're kind of sheltered, and we're, we remain in the state of spiritual infancy. But at the same time, if we have this like um, defeatist mentality where we have absolutely no control over our life, we have absolutely no control over what we um, can, can do, then we feel paralyzed, right? And this is something that uh, philosopher and psychologist uh, Viktor Frankl learned when he was a prisoner during World War II Holocaust. And he realized that the only thing that's keeping a person uh, going in life, right? The only thing that like is sustaining him or her, right? Who can endure all sorts of horrific conditions and torture and suffering is if he or she uh, understands that they have a purpose in life, that they have meaning. And I shared this quote with everyone over the email is that if someone understands why they live, they can bear with almost any how. And now, because we've lived this very comfortable life in America for several decades, we haven't seen this kind of pandemic uh, in nearly 100 years. And those who are privileged feel like they are losing their grasp of power in this country. All right? And people who are minority, people of color, um, people like me, uh, are growing in population in America and in less than uh, 20 years the people who are considered minorities now will become the majority where less than 50% of America uh, are going to be white are going to be white Americans and so they are feeling this shift in power where the marginalized are having a louder voice and the people who've always had power the people who've always been in seats of privilege are kind of weakening their grip and so that is why we saw what happened last week in dc but this has revealed to us uh, something very significant over the past couple decades and it is this it is that christians are being covertly and consistently formed by a culture fashioned by shallowness in short we are shallowly formed and this is from the words of Rich Viodas, who is the pastor of New Life Fellowship Church in New York. Uh, he himself being Puerto Rican, uh, leading this church in Queens, which is very diverse. Um, but he has this interesting perspective of leading this large, diverse congregation that we Christians are being more discipled by the world than we are of Jesus. Christians are being more discipled by the world than we are of Jesus. And one of the things that our world in America wants is fast faith. 
We want our spiritual health to happen quickly in an instant. But spiritual growth doesn't happen like that. Spiritual growth happens slowly, which means growth cannot be forced, faked, or manipulated. It has to happen slowly. One of the things that um, I uh, tell my kids all the time, okay, my daughter is nine and my son is five and, uh, you know, they're, they're growing every day, you know, and they're eating well and they're playing and they're exercising and um, they're growing well. Um, but one of the things that I have to tell them like pretty often is that they need to get enough sleep because uh, they do most of their growing while they're sleeping. Okay, and this is actually uh, true, okay? Um, antithetical to uh, uh, the kind of Western mentality that we have right now, like growing cannot happen quickly. And like even just literally physically, we cannot grow uh, unless we get enough rest, unless we literally slow down and sleep. And so maturation cannot be rushed and emotional health is not something that can be forced. Now, the, the passage that we read from today is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it, 1 Corinthians 13 is a famous chapter because it's the famous chapter on love, right? It's the chapter that says love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Now, I have to give you a little bit of context of today's passage in order to understand why Paul wrote, Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in a city called Corinth. Now, Corinth was a hub of cultures in the first century. Okay? It was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, second to Rome, and because it was a major port city, it was a major harbor city. And it was on this narrow piece of land called an isthmus, right? Where there were ports on the north side of the land and there were ports on the south side of the land. And so Corinth was in this uniquely positioned uh, ge uh, geography where they can have access to ships from above and below. Now, because this was such a hub of cultures and languages and people, there were are all sorts of conflicting philosophies and religions that were existing in Corinth at the time. And so their understanding of love, for example, was very, very messed up. Okay, uh, A lot of times when people thought of love, they thought of just simply sex. Okay, uh, Or other times when, we th when they thought of love, they thought of simply emotion. All right. Or other times when pe people thought of love, they just thought of it as like an interest or like philosophy. Now, if there were any city like Corinth in the world today, it is Los Angeles. Okay, Los Angeles in many ways is a hub of so many different cultures and languages and ultimately uh, philosophies and spiritualities. And so it is no wonder why our idea of love, our concept of love is so messed up. And so the same reason why Apostle Paul was writing to the church in the city of Corinth would be similar to what, what he would write to us now is because the Corinthians didn't really know what love was. Likewise, we don't really know in America what love is. 
a lot of times the Western ideal of love is what can this person do for me? All right? What can this person uh, do for me? But if you look at the qualities that's listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says things like love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. As we're reading this, it kind of sounds more like love is what can I do for this other person? The Western mentality of love is like, what can this person do for me? But the biblical definition of love is what can I do for this other person? So it makes complete sense that scripture tells us that God is love. This is ultimately what God did for us. He came down for us in order to show us the way, in order to guide us and, and lead us and, sh and show us how it means to live a better life. And it has to begin with this, okay? And, this, and we're going to circle back to this concept of love at the end, right? But growth, it has to begin with self-awareness. Growth has to begin with self-awareness. Awareness. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 of the passage we just read today. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now this is the critical part. Now I know in part then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. This is clearly saying that we don't really know ourselves completely, okay? And we might not ever know ourselves completely while we are still here on this earth. It is only when we are completely united with God um, after, we part from the, after we depart from this world that we will be fully known, that we will really, truly, fully know ourselves. But part of this journey of life is this journey of self-awareness. Now, we don't really think uh, that much in terms of self-awareness when we're children, right? Like, um, my, my son <laughs> is, is five years old, and I was thinking about this. I was trying to, like, um, project myself onto him <laughs> as a five-year-old, right? And I was thinking, like, I, I wonder if my son ever sits in his bed and like does some self-reflection and ask himself, who am I? <laughs> what is my role in this world? <laughs> Why do I exist? I, I don't think my son thinks that kind of um, <laughs> as existentially, right? Uh, that's why it says, like, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I talked like a child, I reasoned like a child. And, and, that's, and no one expects a, a five-year-old boy to think that way. But when you become a man, right, or you become a woman, you put those childish things behind you and it, you do need to do some self-reflection, right? You do need to become more self-aware. And if, if you never do that, right, then you're never going to change, right? And if you never see yourself for who you truly are, and if you're not honestly self-aware, you're never going to grow in those areas. Let me give you uh, an example, all right? Um, and this is going to sound extremely judgmental because it is, all right? But I'm 
judgmental, I'm sorry, okay? Uh, so some of the least spiritually or emotionally mature people I know, okay, some of the most uh, spiritually and emotionally immature people I know, to put it in other words, are people who are very successful in their careers, okay? Um, and ultimately, I think it is because that they lack self-awareness. So I have this one friend who is a very accomplished um, medical doctor, okay? And I'm just gonna keep it vague because if I'm too specific, then um, people might know who I'm talking about. But, so I have this friend who's this very successful, accomplished like medical doctor. And um, he's kind of a jerk, okay? Like he is a totally bad husband and his kids are horrible, all right? They're like little freaking monsters. I hate them. Oh, okay. Sorry, I shouldn't say I hate them. Um, I can't stand them. And um, he just, and he makes all these like really racist and stupid comments sometimes that are completely um, uncalled for. And um, when I call him out on it, he just laughs it off and he just like shrugs it off. And I can't stand it. And one of the things that he does, um, and this is a friend of mine, okay? Uh, and one of the things that he used to do a lot uh, when you know we were first like hanging out is that like he would give me advice on how to be a good pastor, okay? He's not a believer, okay? He's not spiritual at all. He's not religious at all. And he um, doesn't know the first thing of what it means to be a pastor, okay? But he always gives me advice on how to be a good pastor. And so, you know, the first couple times I kind of amused him. I was like, okay, yeah, sure, okay, okay, doctor, right? Um, but and then and when he kept doing this, I, I just told him to like, shut up. Like, you don't know the first thing what it means to be a spiritual leader. And so I've always wondered this, right? Like, why, how can someone who's such an accomplished doctor or how, uh, someone who's such a, a successful banker, right? Be such a terrible dad or someone who's um, such a good athlete, right? Uh, become so like morally bankrupt. And it's ultimately because they lack self-awareness. They assume, or they don't, maybe they don't even think like this, right? But they assume that because they're good in, they're really, really good in this one area, they're automatically good in these other areas. Or like they don't need to work on that other stuff because that one area make more than makes up for it, right? And so that's why we see these like incredible athletes who cheat on their wives. Um, that's why we see these like CEOs uh, be so corrupt, right? And that's so, and, 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 it, and it's hard. It's so hard to measure um, these intuitive areas like relationships or emotional health or spiritual health it, because it's uh, they're, they're so invisible, right? It's easy to measure like financial health because you just look at your bank account, right? It's easy to measure like physical health because you just get a checkup at the doctor or you check your BMI or whatever, right? But it's so hard to measure these other areas. And because they're so unseen, they're so invisible, uh, they often go neglected. But growth happens the same way that uh, spiritual growth happens the same way that physical growth happens and that it happens slowly but it has to begin with self-awareness and the other thing that this passage teaches us about growth is that growth has to be intentional 
Growth has to be intentional. In the beginning of today's passage, in verse 8, it says, Love never fails. In other versions of the, of the Bible, like the ESV, it says, Love never ends. But ultimately, the main word, the original language uh, that we have here for fail or end is fall. Okay? Love never falls. Okay? Uh, that doesn't mean that, like, we don't make mistakes. It ultimately means that, like, we always get back up and we keep trying okay and we keep growing we um bad things happen to us it's okay to get knocked down um but you just pick yourself up and like you keep going right you keep pressing forward growth spiritual maturity emotional health it doesn't just happen and it doesn't just happen right and um it's something that has to be done very, very intentionally, mindfully, and deliberately. An Old Testament professor um, and, and scholar, his name is Walter Brueggemann, he wrote this wonderful book uh, about the Psalms, the book of Psalms, and uh, called The Psalms and the Life of Faith. And he says this about lament, the importance of lament, and why we should feel grief when we do fall. What happens when appreciation of lament as a form of speech and faith is lost? What happens when the speech forms that redress power distributions have been silenced and, and eliminated? The answer is that the theological monopoly is reinforced, docility and submissiveness are engendered, and the outcome in terms of social practice is to reinforce and consolidate the political economic monopoly of the status quo oh man i'm just gonna leave this screen here for a second okay dr brueggemann wrote this in 1995 and it's still so relevant now it's probably more relevant now than it was back then a couple years ago i also read this other book from psychologists Henry Cloud and John Townsend called How People Grow. And they also reinforced this belief that growth has to be intentional. Action is always an integral part of growth. Spiritual growth does not happen to us. It requires a great deal of blood, sweat, and tears. Growth has to be done intentionally. You have to plan it, right? You have to schedule it in. You have to like be deliberate about it. If you do nothing, your spiritual growth will just uh, devolve. It, 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 will, um, it will just get worse, okay? Your spiritual health doesn't just happen. You have to be intentional about it. We must pay attention and, and we have to create spaces where we allow God to speak to us. Now, you might think like that's unnatural, right? Or, or it's not organic. But by not doing it, we are blocking the voice of the Holy Spirit out. Okay, if we fill our schedules with anything but God, then we don't leave any time and space for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. The Holy Spirit always wants to guide us and lead us and speak to us, but we have to be willing to pay attention. Lastly, and this brings us back to the theme of love, okay? 
Growth is a result of love, not knowledge. Growth, a result, growth is a result of love, not knowledge. Knowledge does not equal growth. Okay, I I think most of us know this, but um, I I doubt most of Americans know this. Is that like knowledge does not equal growth? In another passage, in First Corinthians, chapter eight, Apostle Paul wrote this to the Christians in the city of Corinth in the first century. We know that all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not know as they ought to know. Hmm. How pertinent is this passage in our world today? Now, with our access to information, our ability to Google Siri or Alexa, any random thought that we have, knowledge and information is not hard to come by, right? And we have such amazing ability to access any kind of information we want, and we are so overwhelmed and inundated with knowledge. But it feels like people are becoming less and less spiritually mature. Why is that? It is because knowledge does not equal growth. Okay, knowledge does not equal growth. What ultimately leads to growth is love. Growth is a result of love. Now you can. Let me just give you an example, okay? You can read all the books you want on the game of basketball, okay? You can study stats, you can study basketball history, and you could do all the research you want. But if you truly love the game, right? And and you're not like physically limited, right? If you truly love the game and you want to improve on basketball, you're gonna practice, right? Love is gonna make you practice. It's gonna make you like shoot hours and hours of hoops.、Um, Whenever you can, right? And it is because of your love of the game that you're going to grow. And this applies to almost every area, especially relationships, right? Just knowing what to do to maintain a healthy relationship does nothing, right? It's ultimately love that's going to make you make those sacrifices, those compromises, those hard changes in order to maintain a healthy relationship. Spiritual growth,、um, and this is something else that、uh, Dr.、Um, Henry Cloud and John Townsend said in their book, "How People Grow." Spiritual growth should affect relationship problems, emotional problems, and all other problems of life. There is no such thing as our spiritual life and then our real life. It is all one. There is no such thing. This is so good. There is no such thing as our spiritual life and then our real life. It is all one. Spiritual growth is not one-dimensional. If you are growing spiritually, it spills into all other areas of life. Your relationships will improve. Your mental and emotional health will improve. Your care for social justice will improve, and your love for the marginalized will improve. If faith doesn't care for the poor, doesn't empathize for the marginalized, doesn't mourn 
with the suffering neighbor, then that faith is shallow, immature, or fake. I'm going to close with this, okay? Um, in the 70s, there was a medical doctor who coined this term uh, wellness. Uh, his name is Dr. John Travis, um, and he um, used it as a more holistic approach to uh, the human health, okay? Because whenever people talk, doctors talked about being healthy uh, prior to Dr. Travis, they were simply talking about physical health, right? And he coined this term wellness. And, and he used this illustration of an iceberg, this iceberg to represent wellness. Now, it, this picture looks a little bit like childish, right? Because on the top you see um, the state of health or the state of wellness, and, but underneath it, okay, so just don't, don't be distracted by the childishness of this drawing, but look at the words, all right? These are all the different things that make up a person. So for better or worse, whenever you encounter a person, all you see is that tip of the iceberg, right? But what truly makes a person are all those things underneath, your daily habits, your, um, your psychology, right? Uh, what motivates you in life, your, your spiritual realm, right? And, and uh, there, there, there's probably a lot more that you could put underneath the surface, but kind of put it in basic terms. Like that's really what makes up a person is uh, most of it goes unseen. Now, one of my mentors, uh, his name is um, Pastor David Kim, and he's a pastor up at um, Chatsworth, California. Uh, he always says that healthy spirituality needs to be lived inside out. It needs to be healthy spirituality needs to be lived from the inside out. This means that most of what we do in our spiritual life goes unseen, or it's private, or it's um, unrewarded. It's those um, private prayers that you have with God. It's the personal times of studying scripture that you do in your room. It's giving uh, to those in need. It's buying food for that hungry person who lives um, on your street. It's giving offering to the church. Most of these things go unnoticed by uh, most everybody else. But these are the daily habits that build healthy spirituality but we unfortunately we live in an outside-in culture where uh, the world tells us like just put that fake mask on right put that facade and pretend like you have it all together and then eventually the inside will reflect it but that's not true right and that this is the total deception of social media right we present ourselves to be more successful than we actually are we portray our bodies to be fitter or sexier than they are in reality and we show our relationships to be happy and exciting all the time even when we know it's not but spirituality healthy spirituality doesn't work this way right spiritual healthy spirituality takes time it grows slowly and it has to begin with self-awareness has to be intentional and uh, it has to uh, be done out of love it's a result of love so this is my prayer and my hope for you all is that you would take those little baby steps to grow spiritually um, and most of these things go unseen uh, unnoticed and 
unrewarded. Uh, and you're not going to feel the immediate effects of these things, right? But that's not how it's supposed to happen, right? Healthy spirituality takes time. And so I encourage you um, to, to do those things in your, and, and, and the ways that you cannot do it on your own, that's exactly why the church exists, right? That's what, exactly why our small groups exist. That's exactly why I give these messages, right? To help inspire you and to encourage you. And uh, if you spent all week not reading scripture once, at least you're getting spiritually fed right now. And so that is my challenge to you is continue to do that work of spiritual growth through self-awareness, uh, intentionality, and through love. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for modeling for us what it means to spiritually grow. Jesus, you did not feel rushed at all when you were doing your ministry. Lord, you were intentional about taking and spending time with our Heavenly Father to just uh, be intimate uh, with you, Lord. And um, you were very intentional about uh, spending time with the Father. And, and you were also... Everything that you did, you did from a place of love, Lord, and help us to follow in that model, Lord. And as you continue to change our heart and you continue to make us more and more like the men and women of God that you desire for us to be, may it spill into all other areas of our lives, Lord. May it make our relationships better, or may it make um, us a better worker in whatever we do. Uh, may it help us to empathize with those who are in need to empathize with those who are marginalized lord um it, i don't know where people are in their um, current physical state but many of us are spiritually poor and we desire change lord we desire change in our state of brokenness our state of being in spiritual poverty and you are the only one who can do that lord but we have to take those active steps of intentionality towards you that is our prayer that is our desire it's in the name of the father son and holy spirit we pray amen amen have a blessed week